Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to say a few things to those of you guys visiting um, or uh, watching online this morning. Is Again, as Jake said, we want to welcome you. We're honored that you can uh, join our service in, in this way. Um, we're, we're trying to do some things to improve and enhance that experience for you guys, but I know we have um, people like Tony and Dana, Wally, Nita, but even Teresa, who's over in Kosovo right now, who join in online. And so our, our, our attempt to, uh, is to make some changes to make that, again, a better experience for you guys to also kind of feel as much as you can like you're part of this service. And so we're, we're honored that you guys can join in uh, via live stream today. I um, just want to recognize this as part of the Jake said, there's a need for audio visual. And so uh, it just takes more right now to do what we're doing uh, via live stream. And so if you're willing to help out in that area, we could definitely use some help. And so we're running m- more cameras and everything uh, than usual. And so also, if you get a chance, um, just give a thanks to the guys that are helping out doing that each week as well. So we're going to continue in our series this morning, uh, Saints and Society. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The reason it's called Saints and Society, and we say this week after week, is because Paul addresses the church and the members of the church as saints. And so saint in some uh, denominations or background is something that you arrive at through enough work and through enough efforts. With Christianity, it's fundamentally different than that. It's actually some, it's your starting place. So you start as a saint and you start there by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so you don't do enough good things and through your best efforts arrive at sainthood. Through faith in Christ, you start there. And then Paul says, as a saint located in Corinth, but now is a saint for us located in Lane County. This is what it looks like for you to live faithfully out of your new grace-given identity. So that's why it's titled Saints in Society, because it's very easy for society to push against what it is for a saint and, and how a saint should live. And what we see in God's Word is this is what it looks like for a saint to live. So this morning we're going to be in one of the most popular chapters in all of the Bible. It's the chapter that's read at almost every wedding. And it's the chapter about love. So if, the, if there was a, a sermon that I could preach one sermon before I die or from, from, from one passage, I think in a lot of ways this is the passage I would want to preach because it reshapes and rewires the way that we understand love and think about love and what it is to be loving, but what it is to live out an identity as someone who is loved. And so l- let me structure the passage for you guys this way, for those of you that are note takers, is the main point today is going to be this, the saints take God at his word. So the saints, those that are holy and set apart, they take God at His Word. This is His Word, not what the world says, not even what your emotions say, but what God's Word says. So the saints take God at His Word. In verses 1-3, through um, we're going to look at our first problem. There's going to be three problems today. The first problem is this, is that we need to be loved. So in verses 1-3, through we're going to see there's this problem here. And the problem is that that we actually need to be loved. In verses 4-7, through we're going to see our next problem, which is this. Love is hard. We're not really good at it. And the third thing is that we project God's love or the way that God loves based upon how we love others. Got that? So um, love is hard. We're not good at it. And we think God is like us. And then in the last verses there, 8 through 13, we're going to look at this. That we live in the already but not yet. We live in the already but not yet. So we are going to see and let Scripture Let God's Word, take God at His Word for how His Word describes love. Before we do that, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to read through it. But I want to ask you guys some questions right now. I'm not a big fan of raising your hand and making people raise hands. I know for those of you guys that maybe are non-Christians, you're already uncomfortable by stepping into a church this morning. But I'm going to ask you to do it anyways. And if you're at home, you can just say yes. But I, I kind of want to do this because I want to know what I'm working with and, and even to some degrees working against because society, again, is telling us what love is. And our culture at large, Hollywood, movies, TV shows, tell us what love is. And so if, if you've seen any of these movies, please slip up your hand. Unless you're totally embarrassed, then just leave it down. <clears throat> or do it fast. The Notebook. All right. Okay. Sweet Home Alabama. Okay. <laughs> Come on, guys. <clears throat> Dudes are like this. Ghost, like a 1990 movie with Patrick Swayze? Okay. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Okay. More for that one. Sleepless in Seattle, a little older. Okay. Dating your guys' selves. All right. Who's, who, who's seen Friends, the TV series? Okay. All right. It's helpful. Here, here's why I'm asking all this. Every one of those shows or every one of those movies is all painting a picture. It, it is speaking to us. It is telling a story. It's telling a narrative. And it's actually telling you this is what love is and this is what it looks like to be in love. This is what it looks like to do love. This is what it looks like to practice love. All of those things, whether we recognize it or not, radically influence us in our understanding of love, in, in the way we think about love, in the way we give love, offer love. And then we, we, we develop terms and stuff out of that. Like, I, now, I have now fallen out of love, which you, you can't support that biblically. I, I no longer have electricity. I no longer have butterflies. I no longer feel in love with you as though love were only an emotion. And so we adopt these things, and these things become normal language for us in our life. We're even told in Gatorade commercials, this is what you get by working hard. We're told by extra gum commercials that, um, that give extra and get extra. So all of our world is telling us, this is what it is. If you give and put in and do all this, this is what you get in return. So when we get to God's love, our natural response is going to be this. We're going to push it away because it does not look like the world tells us love should look. It looks really different which in return is really hard for us to accept. So with that, let's pray. Father, we recognize that it's our tendency to push back on something that we can't earn and that we can't show or lay any claim to, God. Your grace is so hard for us to wrap our minds around, but even harder for us to wrap our hearts around. Help us this morning to see what your word says, to take you at your word, to believe you instead of culture, to believe you instead of the enemy, to believe you instead of lies, and to believe you as supreme and transcendent over our own emotions. Thank you for your word, your living word that speaks to us, that teaches us, that recalibrates our understanding of what love is and how far we've gone wrong and how far we've missed the mark. But Jesus, you have not. And in every way we fall short, you are perfect. This morning, speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, convict us, heal us. Heal, heal marriages, heal relationships, heal our community, heal our church family through a true understanding of what it is to be loved and then what it is to love out of your love, God. We need you. We pray your spirit would lead us this morning. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. 
These are the words of the Apostle Paul. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give, all, if I give away all I have and if I del- deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And again, our main point being that we take God at His word. But the first problem that we have is that we actually need to be loved. Our greatest problem is that we need to be loved, not that we need to do a bunch of loving things. So if, if, if you're a note taker or a highlighter, I would highlight three spots in verses one through three because it's really significant what Paul is doing here. Notice, if I speak in tongues of man and of angels, but have not love. Notice he says, but have not love. And, and if you go down in verse two, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, notice again, underline this, but have not love. Again, at the end of verse 3, if I give all away um, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what's going on in Corinth is this. is actually Jake Clausen preached a sermon on this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on spiritual gifts. And this is sandwiched in this love chapter uh, um, between Paul again dressing those gifts in chapter 14 and what they look like for the local church family to use them when we meet on Sundays. But sandwiched in between this is all about love. But if you'll notice, what, what Paul is going after here is he's going after tongues and he's going after prophecy. So the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. We'll talk more about what I believe those things mean in chapter 14. But for now, we, we, we know and understand this. The reason why these were so elevated as spiritual gifts in uh, the, the church of Corinth was because they brought a lot of attention to oneself. And so the gift of tongues is something that you can do and you can show and bring a lot of attention to yourself. Same with prophecy. So of course in this culture they liked it because it would gain them a lot of attention and respect. Notice Paul's not saying and talking to them about the gift of wisdom or the gift of mercy or the gift of generosity. A lot of those things are done kind of behind closed doors, but these gifts are the ones they like to take a lot of credit for. And here's the, here's the reality. There's a lot of churches in our culture today where these gifts are highlighted even above the rest. To, to, so much so that it's even said that you're not actually a Christian until you're slain in the Spirit and, and speak in tongues. Though biblically that's not supported, that is, is something that's said. So these gifts are highlighted. And why did spiritual gifts get highlighted? Or better yet, what are spiritual gifts for? Spiritual gifts are for two reasons. To bring ultimate glory to God and to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's it. So they're, they're to give glory to God through exalting Jesus by the Spirit's power and they're to build up one another to help us grow into who we are in Christ and live out of our new identities as saints in Christ. But what we do is we elevate these gifts, worship these gifts, and ultimately we worship ourselves because we want to gain credit. And so that's what's going on here. And so Paul's like, look, 
you, you, can, you can speak in tongues. In fact, you can even speak in the tongues of angels. We don't know what that is. But Paul is someone who's been caught up in the third heaven, so he's heard stuff and seen stuff that we haven't seen. But he's like, you can have all of this, but if you have all this and do all this, but you don't have love, you're nothing. But if I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What were, what were noisy gongs used for? There's actually, archaeologists have, have found this, but what, uh, one of the things that they would use these gongs for is they would actually go around and, and clang them over tunnels and over passages. And if the sound came back clear, then they knew that tunnel or passage led to an, uh, an outer way. But if it came back dull, they knew that it was a dead end. So in a lot of ways, Paul is like, the way you're using your gifts is just coming back, its return is dull, because it's all about you. And so Paul's, Paul's addressing this. You, you can do, here, here's, here's the scary thing, you can do a bunch of spiritual stuff, but you can be dead. You can do all these things, but have not love, and you are dead. And, and Paul even goes on to say, uh, he, he's being hyperbolic and he's using hyperbolic lang language, but he's saying, if I have uh, pr uh, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, which no one has, but Paul is using this just to say that even if you did have all that or could do all that, but look, look again, but if you have not love, he says, I am nothing. M maybe that's offensive to you, so another translation is, I am no one. That's what Paul says. But Paul's not softening a blow here. This is, this is big language. He's like, look, you can do all this stuff, but if you have not love, you're nothing. Here's where it gets a little interesting. Is Christians can, can, can do something to try to fill a void within us. And what Christians will oftentimes do is do stuff that looks really good and do all of these things to try to fill the same void that a non-Christian might try to fill doing something else, like your humanitarian efforts, your noble causes to social justice, whatever it is. It's the same thing. You can use spiritual things or you can use humanitarian things to try to fill up a void inside of you. And even Paul goes on to explain this. He's like, look at this, verse three. If I give away all I have, so if I just write a huge check, sell my house, minimize everything, live off a few articles of clothing, just, I mean, live really a minimalistic life, and deliver up my body to be burned, like Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. He was, they, they, they went to tie him to the stake to be burned alive, and he said, don't, don't tie me to the stake. He's like, trust me, I have faith in God that, that I will be able to stand here and endure this pain. You don't need to tie me up. And so he was burned alive as a martyr. And, Paul, and, and so this hadn't even happened yet, but Paul's like, even if you do that, give away all you have, and do all these incredible things that look very loving, but have not love, I gain nothing. What is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying, is that there is a void inside of us. Our, our big problem is that we actually need to be loved. God created us as relational beings to be in relationship with Him and to actually be loved by Him. And so, we, I know it sounds cliche, but people have said we have like a God-sized hole, but the reality is, is there's something missing inside of us. The reason why we, we ask questions like, is this all there is to life? Is this all I have? The reason why we chase things, endeavors, and, and do all sorts of stuff is because we're trying to fill up a void inside of us. We're, we're trying to satisfy part of us that only God's love can satisfy. Because our biggest need is that we actually do need to be loved. I remember growing up playing sports, specifically baseball, and I oftentimes remember looking up 
to my dad just to see, and I've shared this before, just disappointment. I remember after practices were over, we, we would have to run bases and do stuff like that, and then I would, I would try my hardest and run my hardest to outrun everyone out on that field. And sometimes I would, sometimes I wouldn't, but either way I was met with, you can run harder, and you always need to be the fastest. During games, I remember messing up and just looking up to the stands and seeing my dad put his head down. That was the nicest thing he could have done. I remember being at games and my dad would scream at the top of his lungs, not stuff like, come on, but pull him out of the game, coach, he's blown it for the whole team. My dad was a big personality, very vocal. My mom got to where she wouldn't attend baseball games anymore. Do you know what that led me to do? It led me to push harder and try harder because at the core, all I wanted to hear was my dad say, I'm proud of you, I love you, that's my son. And it drove me mad, it drove me so mad that by 14 I was diagnosed with stress seizures. I had so much stress on me in life, the doctors didn't know what to do and they said he's having these seizures from the amount of stress. This actually didn't lead me to push hard in life, it led me to quit on everything, school, sports, everything. Because underneath all that was someone just longing for love. I, I still wrestle with this now, and this is what I mean we can do it by good endeavors, is that I love theology, but I have an unhealthy competition for anything in, in, in my life that I enter into, whether if it's monopoly or it's theology, I want to win. And so I can do stuff like loving theology or loving God's Word, but I want to be better at it than other people, including Ronnie who's sitting over there. But I want to be, <laughs> be better. And that's not a good motivation to do stuff. What's underneath that is still a, 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 a lack of belief or, or an understanding of how much I'm loved and what I want. And here's the reality in what Paul's saying is you can do all the things in the world, but in some sense it would be like me placing my four-year-old next to the Grand Canyon with a little shovel and saying, fill up this hole. It's never going to work. So we'll run after things. We'll chase things. We'll do things to try to fill up this void in us that in all reality needs to be loved by God. We're created by Him, we're created for a relationship by Him, but we're created to be loved by Him. And, and, and so Paul is like, you can do all these things. And here's where it gets scary, is that you can, you can be someone who's morally dead, or you can be someone who's immorally dead. So in other words, you can be someone who keeps all the rules and is still dead, or you can be someone who breaks all the rules and is still dead because at the core, if you don't understand all that it is to be loved by God, and, and, and if your identity isn't in that, then you will, you will strive for a quest to find your identity in something. And maybe it's breaking all the rules, maybe it's keeping all the rules instead of knowing and understanding full well what it is to be loved by God. You see, in, we, we could blame Hollywood for this, but the reality is, is if you go back to the Genesis account, you see whenever they sinned against God, they did something externally. We could talk about this every week, but, but they try to fix their problem with fig leaves. They did an external action to try to fix an internal problem. They thought, surely something's wrong inside of us now. We're missing something. What we need to do is obviously get some good clothes. Let's try to put some good clothes on us. And so this is, and they're not good clothes, obviously, but that's what we do now. We, we do endeavors. We chase PhDs. We chase degrees. We chase families. We chase jobs. We chase buying homes. We chase having kids. We chase all these things to try to fix what is going on inside of us. How do I know that? Because that's what Adam and Eve did, and we've done it ever since. That is called sin. We are trying to take something in this world and, and say to this thing, I need you to give me worth and purpose I need you to give me meaning when in all essence, the only thing that's going to do that is understanding God's love but being reconciled to God and being loved by God. God didn't create us because he needed something for us. 
There, there's other creation accounts in the, in the Mesopotamian culture called the Enuma Elish and Gilgamesh. And both those accounts, their gods created humans to, to fulfill and do something for them. Our God didn't need anything from us. He just wanted us and wanted to love us and be in relationship with us. That was broken by sin. And now what we do is we try to fill the void of that relationship that's been severed by filling it with things in this world. Broken relationships, broken marriages, broken uh, or disunity inside of the church, these things flow out of not remembering at the core who we are and what we have. With each one of these problems, there's a solution, and the solution is always the gospel. But here's the reality, is that what we need is to be reconciled to God. But this is not like some small gap. This is not like some small problem. We don't need Jesus to come and live just some moral life as an example for us so we can make some minor tweaks. What we actually need is our separation from God is an infinite problem. And so what we need is we needed God to send an infinite substitute and an infinite Savior to fix this infinite gap that we have between us and God. So Jesus goes to the cross, dying the place, or, or dying our death in the place that we deserve to be. Why? It's not because God is angry and so he sent him there and Jesus is the loving one. It's actually God before found the foundation of the world said that this is going to be the plan. This is what I'm going to do. God sent his son, and, and we know this from Romans 5.8, this is how we know the love of God because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so on the cross, what Jesus was doing was paying the, uh, uh, fulfilling the wrath of God that our sins deserve. And what he was doing is, is making us righteous before a righteous and holy God. And we have that through faith in him. We have this reconciliation. We have this love from God. He's, he's, what Jesus is doing on the cross is saying, like, this is no big deal. What you ultimately need in life to be satisfied is to be reconciled to God. I'm here doing that. I'm reconciling those who put their faith and trust in me to God to fill up this void. Notice, notice this language here. Paul doesn't say, if you have not loving acts, if you, do, if you don't do loving things. Three times, what does Paul say? But have not love. But have not love. But have not love. If you have not this love from God, you will spend your life tirelessly, effort, or, or just filled with effort, with a lack of peace, with restlessness, trying to fill it with something else. So Christ steps on the cross and says, let me give you what you ultimately need. God's love, God's acceptance, God's approval. And here's the reality. We can't actually love correctly until we are first loved by God. Why? Because we will actually do loving things like we see in the text to try to gain God's approval or we will do loving things to try to gain other people's approval. That's not loving. That's actually you loving yourself and trying to give yourself something from loving other people. And the other thing, so, so that's an identity quest. The, the other thing is that it's going to change your motivations. It's not really loving if you're doing things to try to give yourself worth for other people. But when you know that you're loved and there's nothing that can change God's love for you and that you're loved infinitely, it changes the way you love people. Look at some of these verses we have. 1 John 4.19 affirms this. That's why I said the saints need to take God at his word. Not my words, not even one another's words. Take God at what his word says. 1 John 4.19 says this. We love because he first loved us. And then maybe you say, okay, how much? John 15, 9. Look at this. 
as the Father, this is Jesus, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, now remain in my love. Uh, um, imagine that. How much love does, 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 uh, does God the Father have for God the Son? An infinite amount of love, like immeasurable, his delight, his joy. And this is what he says, as the Father has loved me, Jesus is saying this to, to us, I have loved you that exact same way. Like that is crazy. John 17, 23, because maybe you say, well, that's Jesus, but again, I have this view of God that he's angry. Well, well then listen to this. I and them and you and me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, Jesus talking to the Father, and that you have loved them even as you love me. And so in return, Jesus loves you with the same love the Father loves him, but the Father loves you with the same love that he loves his own son. So think about that. Whenever you mess up, whenever you're struggling to go, I don't know, I don't feel loving, you have to know in the moment that through your faith in Jesus, God loves you the exact same way that He loves His Son. That sounds scandalous to even say. That's the kind of love God has for you. Paul expounds on this in Ephesians 3, 17-19. He says, So that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith, that, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know what the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God there is a love that even su surpasses what our minds can get our uh, uh, wrapped around it, it, it's, it's not this cold calculated love one that we can just study and know facts about it's a love to be experienced and Paul's like I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge look at what Isaiah says in 30 15 for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Look here. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Where is our strength? Our strength is in trust. In trust that God will never turn away from us. God will never walk away from us. And that God will always, always love His children. That's where strength comes from. And you're like, man, I've, I've done a lot of bad stuff. This week, last night, in, in my life, I don't think you know what I've done. I know this. Paul says in Romans 8, 38 through 39, is for I am sure. So God's word says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the reality with verses 1 through 3. It doesn't matter how big of words you know, how much theology you know, how, how, how big of uh, 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 your vocabulary is and, and that you can uh, just insert that into conversations. It doesn't matter uh, what job you have, if you have a house, what degrees you have. What Paul is saying is fundamentally you are nothing if you do not understand this deep, immense, infinite love that God has for you. But in that, you gain everything. There is not something else that you need to supplement it now. Through this love that God has for you that is infinite, you have all that you need. There's, there's a popular song out there, and I don't want to pick on the song too much. I just want to say that I disagree with how it starts off. It's called Brokenness Aside. But it says this. It's, it says, will your grace run out if I let you down? Will your grace run out? That's an obscure. That, that, that is a, a false view of grace. God's grace that he has for us in our darkest moments, in our worst moments, in our best moments is infinite. God is an infant heir. Like, like, like he is rich 
in mercy. The one time that Scripture actually talks about God's value and how rich He is, it actually applies it and it says, God rich in mercy. That's Ephesians 2. So, when the enemy tells you that you've gone too far, when the enemy says that you've done too much, in your darkest hour or in your brightest hour, what you did last night or didn't do, anything like that, what you have to know is this, is the reason why I don't like that song because it, it, it puts a limit to God's grace which is limitless, but then it says, if I let you down. God's love is not contingent upon our actions, period. That's why it's crazy. God's love is contingent upon the actions of his son in our place. So God is not more in love with us when we do good things and less in love with us when we do bad things. God's love for us does not flow out of our actions, but it flows out of Christ's actions in our place. God's love flows out of His grace. It's He that initiated it. It's He that pursues us. It's He that pours it out. It's not us. And that song goes on to say um, that, that if I lie or tell you lies, the reality is as we do, we're walking contradictions. But God is the one that doesn't waver in His love for us. The thing that will shape and, and change and transform your life is to know and understand fully how much you are loved by God every moment of every day. He goes on to say this. Verses 4-7. through seven. We're introduced to our second problem. That's that love is hard, we're not good at it. And we think God is like us. I'm going to walk through these pretty quick. Again, Hollywood tells us what love looks like. And a lot of that's an emotion, purely. Here's what the Bible says. The saints need to take God's word at His word. He, that He loves us infinitely for those who He has called His sons and daughters. But also, here's the other reality. Love is hard. We're not very good at it. Love is patient and kind. Let's stop there. Love is patient. So, when, when your spouse keeps doing that one thing that drives you insane, when your friends or roommates keep doing the one thing around the house that drives you insane, love is patient. When you've asked your spouse to do that one thing that shows you so much love over and over and over again, love is patient. I am horrible at patience. Driving in grocery stores, if you were inside my head, I hardly think you would think I was a Christian. This is so hard. <laughs> Number the first one crushes me, and it, cr it should crush us. We're not very patient. We want stuff like that in, in our culture, and we, then we have those same expectations on other people. But then it says that love is also kind, which means this, that our patience moves us toward people. It doesn't go like this, because we're like, fine, I'll be patient. I'm just not going to pour out my wrath on them. I'm going to stand over here. My gift to them is I'm not going to <laughs> kill them or whatever and, and so we stand off but actually patient and kind means that out of my patience my kindness moves me toward them so in the moment when they drop the ball out of everything i've asked them to do my kindness moves toward them with mercy and with love love does not envy or boast what does that mean uh, obviously no one likes to be around name droppers and people that boast a lot but boasting takes on many different forms. And one of the biggest forms boasting takes on is gossip. 
The reason why we gossip is because if I'm able to talk about someone else, I'm able to avoid any attention being brought to myself, I'm able to bring them down, which makes me feel awesome, right? We, we, we do stuff and, and think stuff and do that because it makes us feel good about ourselves. I know our, our kids are doing distance learning right now. <laughs> and there's this, there's this one kid, bless his heart, he can't ever figure out the iPad situation. And, uh, and, all, and he screams. He's like, I can't see or hear a thing. Over and over and over again. And I don't understand the level of the teacher's patience. She just keeps plowing through with this very calm voice and like, doesn't even address it and keeps moving. I'm like, I'm losing it. And, and, and he keeps saying, I can't hear or see a thing. And then, like, and then you hear his parents. They're, they are going after it. Like, I told you this and this and this. And like, all I could do is sit back and smile. Why? Because in those moments when I see other people falling apart, there's a level to that that makes me feel good about where I'm at. And oftentimes when we boast, it's, it, it's a way for us to just talk or, or, or gossip. One of the ways that we boast is through gossip to bring others down. The other thing is through comments like, oh, I can't believe I would ever do that. I don't know how I did this. Those statements are so self-righteous. Because the reason why you did what you did is because you're a sinner and you're broken. Which is why Jesus needed to come. Okay, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. What does arrogance mean? It actually means pride is another translation that's used. Pride takes on many forms. It takes on the very boisterous form, but it also takes on the silent form. In essence, what pride is, is it's loving yourself. And you can love yourself through um, being loud and obnoxious, but you can also love yourself through uh, um, committing the sin of omission. And, and pulling back and not stepping in um, to conversations, not inserting yourself into conversations, not sharing, not giving yourself. And so there's two times, types of pride. There's the apathetic pride that's silent, or there's the boisterous pride. But both are an attempt to love yourself by saying, I don't have enough, or I'm not enough, or I can't give, or to say, I'm awesome. Love is not arrogant. Or rude. Love is not rude. Let's just be honest. Are, are you rude to people in your life? Are you rude to your spouse? Do you talk to your husband in a way that disrespects him? Do you talk to your wife in a way that's cruel and doesn't cherish her? Do you talk to people in your community like that? Are you known as someone who, who's rude, who's snappy, who's irritable, who's cranky, who just says or does mean things? That's not a picture of love. Love does not insist on its own way. The other translation there, it's not self-seeking and not self-serving. Are, are you someone who is seeking your own best interest at all times? Are you someone who is looking out to make sure that nothing in life um, imposes on my level of comfort and approval that I have? Are you someone who thinks about your own needs and, and, and doesn't like to serve and doesn't like to do anything for others? And then we go, well, that's just not how I'm wired. Well, the problem is, is our wiring needs rewiring because of the fall and because of sin. I know I'm addressing spouses because the reality is a lot of this self-seeking stuff comes out in relationships or inside of the church. But for the church context, when you show up to Sunday, are you thinking about how you can have the best experience or how you can love and serve your brother and sister in Christ? It is not irritable or resentful. It kind of goes back to the rude thing. But love does not 
easily irritate? Are you someone that's just very short with people? Are you someone that is resentful and holds grudges, that hangs on to bitterness? Because that's not a picture of love. Look, look at verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings. I like the, the NIV translation better. It says that it keeps no record of wrongdoing. I, th- this is probably one of my worst ones, is that I love to keep record of what I've done right and all the good things that I've done, especially in the context of marriage, and here's where you've missed the mark. It is exhausting for my wife or for anyone to live with someone who keeps record of wrongdoing. Are you someone who keeps record of wrongdoing? Do you think about all the things that you've done and how other people have missed it? Do you think, wow, I, I keep doing this over and over again in these relationships, but they're not really stepping up and doing their part. How do you know that? Because your logbook up here keeps record of it. But it says love actually doesn't do that. It also says that love rejoices with the truth. Why is that? Because you can't actually love someone unless you hate injustice. Like, I don't love my kids if I can look at something cruel being done to them and not hate the act of cruelty that's being done to them. Love actually rejoices in truth. It rejoices in justice. It longs for justice. It loves justice. It, It doesn't like injustice being done. That's what love is. And, and, and then he, he basically summarizes it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, love doesn't give up and it doesn't give in. Love keeps pressing on. Love bears faults and failures and sins. Love bears scars. Love bears wounds. Love actually bears sins, the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the sins of our husbands and wives. In Galatians 6, when it says bear one another's burdens, it's actually talking about bearing their burden of sin and walking through them or walking in that season with them. Love bears all things. It, it, it doesn't sit back and go, you know what? Hopefully by now they're going to do this because I've told them like seven times that I want this done. And so I'm going to sit back over here and I'm going to kind of hold a grudge until my spouse or until my community acts this way or does this, and then I will respond. But, but, but I'm tired of doing my part, and so I, I'm, I'm not going to bear with them anymore. I'm not going to persevere. I'm not going to step toward them. I'm not going to step into this. Where does all this come from? Here's the reality, and, 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 and this is the harsh reality, is that at Genesis 1, you see something happen. God creates Man and woman. And it's this beautiful picture. Do you know what it says right after that in verses 29 and 30? Is it actually says God gives. So God creates them. He doesn't need anything from them. He starts giving them things. He's like, here, here, here's all the plants. Here's food. Here's all the things you need. So scripture actually says give. God gives. God gives. And then you jump to Genesis 3, 6. And read this with me. I'll have to look at the screen because I don't have it on my notes. This is, this is we don't blame Hollywood, Okay. We don't blame Hollywood. We don't blame all these films. We don't blame commercials. This has been going on for, for thousands of years, and we trace it all the way back to this moment right here. Love is an act of giving. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took. It's the first time we see the word in Scripture. She took. So God creates and God starts to give. And then where things shift and go awry and go wrong is that love is an act of giving oneself. And what Eve did is she took for the first time and so unraveled humanity from that moment on because now an act of what love is is meant to be giving is now how do I take and take and take and get more things? And that's what sin is. Sin is our selfishness turning inward saying how do I get what I want? That's where things went wrong. 
And then here's the result of that, is there's no one who's good, not one. That's Psalm 14.3. Romans 3.10 also says the same thing. It's Paul actually quoting Psalm 14. Is that there's no one who's good, not even one single person. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceitfully sick. It's not like sin is like this like ethereal thing that floats around out there. Sin is, a, is, is greater than a cancer that exists inside of us because a cancer can kill us physically. Sin can kill us eternally. Sin is dark and it's horrific and it's gross and and, and what it does is it turns us inward to be selfish and to look how I get all that I want when the essence of what God's love was was giving it's outward so it's not Hollywood to blame it's not all these shows it's sin sin is the problem and here's the reality the wages of sin is death and I told someone this week is yes you will die physically one day but because of the result of sin you will die a million deaths before you die that physical one if you give in to sin We'll die a million deaths before our physical one by giving in a sin because when it comes into our life, it turns us inward. It makes us self-consumed. I need something. I deserve something. I'm not getting what I want. And so I'm going to give myself what I want. It'll turn us numb. It'll put us under a spell. It'll make us hard and it'll make us calloused because it's all a self-consuming thing that eats away at us like a cancer. And so the reality is, is that we're not that good Love is hard and we're not that good at it because sin has wrecked us and turned us inward to make us love ourselves. Here's the other problem is that we think God is like us. We think because the way that I would treat someone whenever they sin is I would be cold and calculated. And so God must be like that toward me whenever I sin. Or we think... Whenever we sin, we like to beat ourselves up. And so surely since I like to beat myself up, what God must like to do is He must like to beat us up too whenever we sin until we've done that enough. And and Scripture says God is not like us. Isaiah 55 says this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have, look, God's word, compassion on him. And for our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That means God doesn't like uh, um, just, just a little bit pardon. It means he abundantly offers his forgiveness, his pardon. And look what it says. A lot of people think this is about the sovereignty of God, but it's actually about God not being like us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's the solution if we go back through every one of this thing on this list, we have to recognize that Jesus was patient in every way that we're not. Jesus was kind. He does not envy or boast. Literally from the cross, he wasn't screaming, going, I don't deserve any of this. I don't know why I'm up here. I'm the only perfect person on the, the, uh, the earth. I don't know why this is happening. He was not crying out like that from the cross. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't insist on his own way. Can you imagine Jesus also... Not, not insisting on his own way, not being rude, not being arrogant. He washed his disciples' feet. He got down and washed the feet of those that were going to walk away, abandon, and betray him. And we like to say, this is what I deserve. Surely the king of all the universe deserved to have his feet washed, but he washed feet. He doesn't keep record of wrongdoing. Instead, what Jesus does is he goes to the cross bearing the wrath of God that we deserve to bear. And what he does is rights our wrongs by making us look like law abiders 
and law keepers. Instead, we are so lawless and so far from loving. But what Jesus does is he takes his life of perfect love to the cross. He lays it down on the altar, sacrifices that life to God. And then what he says in return is, you bring your life of unlovingness and let me exchange it for my life of, of being perfect in love to God and to others. Did you know that through faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, everything on this list, he sees you as though you've done it perfectly. That should make us rejoice. If we want to grow in patience, we don't say, I'm going to spend all my week this week growing in patience. We look to the fact that God sees us every moment of every day as though we're perfectly patient. If you want to grow in patience, look to Christ and rejoice in the fact that he's given you his perfect patience. So when God sees you, that's how, if you want to grow in patience or in kindness or in any of these ways, look to the fact that Christ did all this and he gives it to you. Don't rejoice in, 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 in your um, trying to do this. Rejoice in the fact that Christ has done it and he gives it to you. I firmly believe that if we want to grow into the likeness of Christ, we have to look more to Christ, what he's done and what he's provided, and look less to ourselves. But we also need to know that what he does when he saves us is he doesn't leave us powerless. Hear this. He doesn't leave us powerless. So he, do, he, he doesn't say, here's the love that will ultimately satisfy you that we now have. Also, here's my life fulfilling all righteousness given to you so you can be seen as loving before God. But he also says, here's my spirit that empowered me to act this way that I've now imputed and given and sealed you with so now you can walk in what it looks like to be loving. And so if you want to grow in love, then you need to first understand that you are loved and reconciled to God infinitely. But then you need to also recognize that Christ has fulfilled every loving act for you in your place, but that he's also given you the spirit to walk in this love toward others. Here's where it gets hard. I don't have the emotion. If you look at the list, it's going to be really hard because love is hard. Love is not this pure emotion that when I feel like doing something, I do it. Sometimes what we have to do is put our devotion before our emotion and the trust that emotions may come with that. I don't have time to get to the last part of these verses, so maybe we'll get to it next week. But I want to say this in closing. that maybe you're someone who is going through a difficult season in your life right now, that maybe you're going through something troubling, something very difficult, something very hard, that in some sense if you came in this morning or you're listening right now, it feels like you can only crawl. Like you can't walk, you're just hurting. I think of two stories that bring me so much joy and comfort, and it's the story first of Horatio Spafford, and I've shared his story before, but listen to this story, it is quite crazy. The man who wrote the song, We're Getting Ready to Sing, It Is Well. Are we singing that song? Cool. The, 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 the guy who wrote this song, It Is Well, he had five kids. One of them was a boy. The other four were girls. His boy died at age four from scarlet fever. A successful attorney, but when the Chicago fires hit in the 1800s, I think it was like 1873, he lost a lot of his properties and a lot of his business investment. Years later, he and his four daughters decided to take a vacation and travel across the Atlantic, but he was held up by business, and so he wasn't able to make the trip. And so his wife and four daughters went, and only his wife survived as the ship was hit by another ship and sank. She sent a note to him that says, alone survived. And you would think, man, what does someone do and respond that way? And here's the thing, I'm like, could his life get any more horrific? It, it did. They had another boy, and they lost that boy at age four, too. 
he wrote this song. Listen to the lyrics of this song. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Listen. Not my sin, not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. He wrote this song at sea. It, it talks about the waves and, and, and just, just roaring and, and, and the billows. But what he says is that in, in spite of all I've went through, I don't cry out to God that this is what I deserve. What I realize is that I deserve, deserve to bear the full punishment and weight of my sin, but he says, I don't. It was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What I ultimately deserve was the cross. What brings him the most comfort and the most tragedy in his life and in all the pain that he walks through is the comfort of the cross that God will never leave him or forsake him or abandon him. Why? Because Christ endured that on the cross. You might be going through the valley that feels like hell right now. But I promise you that God's words to you and I would take God at his word that he will never abandon you, he will never forsake you and that he loves you and the presence of sin in your life is not an absence of God's love. Here's another song. And the team can make their way up here if you guys want now. This song, written by Sevilla Martin, was taken and, and motivated by a relationship that she had with a couple from New York. The couple that she met in New York, actually, the, um, the, the, the wife was bedridden for 20 years. And the husband could only get to work each and every day in a wheelchair. These are the lyrics from the song that she wrote. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches over me. What brings people hope through whatever you go through in life is this, is to take God at his word, that we're loved, that Christ has done everything. And here's what I would say, regardless of what you feel right now, regardless of what the emotional state that you are in, I would not put that up or challenge that with God's word. I would, I would put that underneath. God's word is transcendent and supreme over your life, that this is your authority, not your emotions, not how you feel, not, not what you think God's word is and what he says about you. If you want to read a book about tremendous love, read this book. Amen?